I am Tobias, this is Tobias Carroll, author of Real and Transitory. Uh, I'm sitting in the home of Duncan Barlow, author of The City Awake, of Flesh and Fur, and others. Nice. So we have been on the road now for a little over a week, um, starting out in Santa Fe and uh, heading to Chicago tomorrow to finish off the tour, and figured we would talk a little bit about book stuff and tour stuff and uh, all that kind of craziness. The uh, wildlife. Indeed. The two two men in a Honda Fit drinking their body weight each in Diet Coke. Yes, and uh, listening to the temples over and over and over again. I mean, I I ended up picking up the temples record as a result of this, so, you know, it's uh, you definitely sold me on it. Yeah, they owe me some royalties, probably. <laughs> So yeah, we, we stopped off yesterday in Sioux Falls and uh, stopped at a record store called Total Drag, and I purchased a copy of the record that we've been listening to pretty steadily through. Uh... So actually, I had, a, I had a weird question. As someone who has done sort of both been on the road for books and has also been on the road uh, playing music, what do you what do you find makes for good sort of tour soundtracking? <clears throat> well, as, as I think you've... Uh... Seeing, I prefer talking. Yeah. And so when I was young and, and in bands, uh, it was all about blasting whatever to drown everybody out. Um, <laughs> and, and now, as I've gotten older, I find that uh, I, I prefer to talk. And I mean, my la- one of my last, second to last tours I did in Europe with music, the driver was really excited because none of us wanted to watch DVDs in the, the tour bus van. Yeah. Uh, and none of us wanted to play music, so he was, he was very much like that. Um, <clears throat> and so, but typically I think when uh, we were driving, uh, we had a third person with us the first couple of days, my friend Nicole, and she would DJ Yeah. Uh, with my uh, digital audio player. And that was great. Uh, and I found that, like, when somebody's doing that, um, so if, if the key is to have a, a, a DJ travel yeah. with you, right? So um, <clears throat> I find that upbeat is good when you're sort of driving with multiple people. Yeah. I'm super curious now because I, I think it took me most of the tour to realize that the device you had that looked like an iPod was not actually an iPod. And as someone who has had a – I have a – one of the nanos now, which was like 16 gigs of music, which is okay, but like I miss the classic. Like I had one classic that broke, and then I had another classic that broke, and it's kind of like I kind of miss having like a hundred something gigabytes of music. Right, so. and, and Apple is is trying to force everything to their cloud, and then data charges and all of that, and it's it's a nightmare. So I. When my classic died, I did research, and I ended up getting this thing called a Theo, and uh, they use smart cards. Oh, cool. And um, they're really great. They're, like, way, way better than an iPod because you you have two playing modes. You have one for DJing. You have one for headphone listening, uh, which controls the volumes differently. It plays every audio file, and it uses smart data, like smart disks. Okay. So you can... Just insert new discs. Yeah. And if you're if you're 
you know, player goes down, you don't lose your music because you have the disc. It's, it's just, it's a much better um, sort of audio. And you can, can you sync it with, move stuff from iTunes to it? Or? Uh, you just have to, like, copy folders over. It's basically okay. like a little hard drive. Okay. Um, I'm, listeners will not be able to hear this because it was imperceptible, but uh, this is the first time that uh, Duncan's cat, Monkey, has just stepped on me and is rubbing her, currently rubbing her tail along my arm, and I'm kind of freaking out because Monkey has literally been staring at me and, like, I think debating ways in which she can eat me this entire trip, and so I'm kind of freaking out. She's fierce, and she, she really only loves me. Um, I mean, it's special. She is, she is pretty adorable. Is it? She's my she's my she's my most stable relationship I've ever had. Oh. Oh, cat. So I guess uh, this is this is another another question I have for you is like how do how does like the performative element as someone who's like you've stood in front of crowds and read and you've stood in front of crowds and uh, you know played music so how do how do you find that that sort of differs? It's entirely different. Um, <clears throat> with music, you have this, this your volume to kind of cover up. Yeah. And, and you can kind of project. I mean, I guess you could do this as a reader, too, project a persona. Um, yeah. But as, as, as a reader, it's, it's, it's incredibly intimidating. I yeah. Think. Uh, and the more you do it, the more experience you get. But... I'm, I, I'm dyslexic, so, um, <clears throat> you know, growing up, read, you know, having to read in public was a huge fear of mine as a child. So sometimes that kind of, I have to, that's why I, I like to, like, walk around a little bit and I chew gum when I read because um, I can get those sort of, um, my mind's doing multiple things, so I never think about, like, you're reading in front of people. Yeah. Um, and that can be sort of terrifying. Yeah. It's weird. I did a reading earlier this year uh, in, in Hudson, New York, and I had a moment. I, I, I'm i not terribly – there was one point where I think I – I was reading a long section from Real, and I think at some point I decided – I realized – or it might have been – it might have been doing like – I might have been doing like a bit from Real and a bit from Transitory, and I think there was some point where I kind of – became very aware of the crowd <laughs> and to the point where I was kind of like maybe, and uh, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, I kind of have one part of my brain doing the, okay, I'm reading, I'm reading, I'm reading. But then another part of me is like, all right, they don't look super, maybe they're not super into it. Maybe I should stop early. Where should I stop? Should I cut something? And kind of, it was very much the trying to walk and chew gum at the same time. And I just remember like starting to stumble over a couple of words, which I hate doing. And it was this very, I don't know. It was this very weird thing. I feel like, but I also feel like I kind of had to have that not personally, at least not great experience. Cause it's also the sort of thing where I don't know, you know, it's not like I started spouting utter gibberish or just like froze up in the middle of it. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I think probably knock on, knock on wood. I am, you know, probably more aware of that than, than anybody else. But, um, like, it definitely, I think, made me much more conscious of, like, needing to focus. And, like, I feel like the readings I've done since then, which has pretty much been this tour and then uh, a reading I did in uh, 
in North Jersey with a poet named Lauren Hilger. Um, I've been feeling pretty good about that, like about those readings, but I feel, but I also feel like it's been a little bit more focused. Like I've been largely this tour, it's kind of been the first chapter of real and then something short from the collection. Um, just cause I wanted to give a little bit of little, little bit of each book. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think Denver might've been the one difference, but given that there were a couple of folks at the Boulder reading and at the Denver reading, I kind of wanted to change things up a little bit. Right. So, um, which is also, it's the weird thing because I mean, I remember, I know I've kind of done a little bit more of a consistent thing on this tour, but like when I was on the road with DeFoy at the end of last year, I kind of very consciously sort of said, okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to try to read different things when we read in Philadelphia and Baltimore. And I had read with him in Newburgh and in, I think it was Woodstock. So it was kind of like, I wanted to try to change things up as much as possible. Um, But there are also just certain things that like, I think we've talked about this a lot. Like there are certain things that just sound, there are certain passages that lend, that lend themselves to being read out loud more. Yes. So, and and this is something that's interesting because as you were you were talking, um, I was thinking about this, um, <clears throat> and it is very much that there's some things that lead themselves. So I remember a couple of anecdotes. One time I was preparing to do a reading for a conference, and <clears throat> my cat Monkey likes to sit on the desk with me when I'm working, and I was reading aloud from one bit, and she was really uh, angry about it and she she sort of attacked the page and so <laughs> i i was like okay well i'm not going to read this new short story then uh <laughs> let me try this this from my book of flesh and fur and she crawled up in my lap and slept and i i i took that as sort of a sign that the first piece may have been too angular yeah and maybe a little aggressive sounding and as a writer, I write for the page, uh, but I do pay attention to to sound quite a bit. So I do a lot of, uh, of you know, sort of verbal editing um, or audio editing, yeah, um, sort of a, to read aloud. But <clears throat> some piece, like I have a piece coming out in uh, Tinge from uh, Temple University, and that's meant to be this sort of strange syntax where these phrases are, are repeated but then there's some where I really fuss over these lines to make that the sounds sort of shift around in a way that's that are balanced and you're right I mean there's definitely some parts that are, are really great to, to read aloud yeah and um, and that that you know and I don't have as many opportunities to read is up here in the, the Great White North as, as you may have in New York. So, you know, typically I only do public readings about once a year up here unless I travel. Yeah. And uh, and it's 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 quite unfortunate um, to, to have to have that sort of uh, restriction. I, I was going to ask actually, and because um, I mean. We're we're in Vermilion, South Dakota, right now, and I mean you you teach at the university here, and we read at the university. But I mean, are there are is there anything else? I mean, is the next sort of closest city that does 
sort of literary events regularly, like a Minneapolis or, you know, are there things happening in like Sioux Falls or, or Sioux City or, well, I mean, I guess Omaha would probably be the, the nearest maybe. You know, uh, there are uh, occasionally, but as you, you know, as we saw um, from our reading in Omaha, there, there didn't seem to be as much support there as you would see in another town. Yeah. Um, Although the reading was a total delight, um, yeah, and we we got to read with uh, with you know my ex colleague uh, Terry Grimm, and yeah, I mean I think that I think it's weird because with Minneapolis, I mean we're talking about a city that is unusually literary for itself, yeah, um, uh, with all the presses and activity there. But I do also feel like then you have this problem of oversaturation. Yeah. Um, and Vermilion is an interesting place because we have a built-in audience of students. Yeah. And faculties. Um, faculty members. Uh, but then you have that also this horrible thing. I remember seeing Mary Capanegra read in at, uh University of Colorado in Boulder once, and she read uh, this really, really amazing, touching story that, that came out and uh, eventually came out and all fell down. Uh, and, you know, her, her stories are quite long. The place was packed, but it was clearly like people made their undergraduates go. And so after she read her first story, she goes, well, you know, um, I'm going to read one more, but you don't have to stay if you don't want to. And it was like, a hundred people just and scooted out. Ooh. And then it was just like this small handful of people and and, and Mary sort of is, is, she's very sort of graceful. And she's like, well, I've learned lessons. <laughs> that. Um, oh, and then she read another story that ended up being in that collection, which was amazing about children giving abortions. But, um, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, the problem with the university readings is there's a lot of people that tend to be sort of held captive because of their grades. Yeah. Um, I mean, great. It's great. Like, you know, you saw yeah. you have this really great audience. But I find with the Vermilion, at least, the students out here uh, aren't, aren't exposed to literature much. So they're actually quite fascinated by it. And, and especially if they've read your work. Yeah. Um, they, they really want to engage with you. Yeah. I, I would say there was a... I mean, I read... I, I totally blanked on one other reading that I've done between the sort of North Jersey one and now, which was reading at the New Hampshire Institute of Art. And I feel like it was a similar thing there, where, you know, I was reading in Tim the class taught by uh, Tim Horvath, and his, and his students were also very, like, seemed incredibly receptive and seemed <laughs> incredibly, you know, excited that I was there. Though there was a hilarious, kind of a hilarious moment where I was doing a Q&A afterwards uh, with, with uh, one of the students in the creative writing program had also read, so we were both getting a fair amount of questions. And, and at one point I was talking about something, and I think I alluded to, I was kind of like, oh, I, I was alluding to an interview or a piece, an essay I had seen Matt Bell write. And I was kind of like, all right, wait, do you guys know who Matt Bell is? And they're kind of like, yes, he spoke to our class, you know, last, you know, last semester. It's kind of like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, wasn't, I had totally forgotten about that, even though it's like, I think I then remembered like, oh, right. I'm friends with both Matt and Tim. And I saw on social media, like a, you know, 
thank you to Matt Bell for being Skyped into our class. It's like, right, or visiting our class. I can't remember if it was uh, virtual or, it or physical. It was the ghost of Matt Bell or his future <laughs> Matt Bell. <laughs> I'm now just imagining, like, yeah, like, 70-year-old, like, Ahab-like Matt Bell traveling back in time to talk about literature. Yeah, he was running in place <laughs> and had a craft beer and had baked this amazing vegetarian dish. Oh, man. <laughs> Matt Bell's meal photos on the internet are some of the most hunger-inducing things you will ever see. Yeah, my dream is one day Matt Bell will invite me to read, and then, you know, they will cook for me. <laughs> and then he'll be like, you want to go for a run? And then I'll just, like, forcibly go, yeah, that'd be great, and I'll go into the bathroom, and it'll be like that movie Victory with... Uh, 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 is that the, so, the Stallone one? Where I have to break my leg. <laughs> and I come out and go, oh man, unfortunately I broke my leg in the bathroom. I can't go for a 20 mile desert run with you. Oh man. Oh, oh man. Uh, I'm trying to think. So, I have one, so one question that's kind of occurred to me about your work. So you have uh, the novel The City Awake that sort of involves all of these sort of doppelgangers walking around this, you know, kind of being enmeshed in these conspiracies in the city, and then you're also reading from a chapbook of Flesh and Fur that involves a man who decides to basically adopt his own infant clone, mm -hmm. and uh, and hilarity ensues. Um, hilarity! <laughs> hilarity ensues! slapstick! <laughs> if you find a baby eating a squirrel hilarious, which I'm sure some people do. Uh, so, I feel like... <laughs> Hilarity ensues is kind of my own placeholder where, you know, when I'm describing a plot, like, you know, this happened. Well, it's kind of like that meme that was circulating where people were like, change the second or add the, the line, then the murders began to right. as the second. And I was kind of like, yeah, that works. Time and met Marianne at a Black Halo show in Seattle. Then the murders began. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, yeah, that, that actually works pretty well. And turns my novel into a book about spree killers, I guess. Uh, yeah, I try to, I like to read the Bible and insert that every other one. <laughs> oh my it's my interests. <laughs> so, so I'm curious, like, because you've talked about how uh, City Awake is, you've been working on it for, a, for many years, and I mean, but these two books are also coming out within a few months of each other. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I mean, was it, I mean, is it just complete coincidence, or were you kind of, were, ha, was the process of working on the, you know, revising the novel and preparing that for publication, did that kind of get this sort of idea of genetics and, and doubles and clones kind of back into your brain? Uh, no, no, not at all, honestly. Um, and I think you know something about books sort of coming out right at the same time, which is yeah. a, a mixed blessing. But, um, so, <clears throat> I'll, I'll try to be succinct. The, the, the City Awake it started in 2008, and I worked on it for a couple of years, and there was quite a bit of research into eugenics, radical Catholic sex, um, sects, yeah, sex. Um, uh, you know, it's, it takes place sort of post-Second World War in the sort of modernist city that is not a city that has a name. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I think there's a lot of, a lot owed to things like books like, you know, City Glass and uh, um, uh, the 
the investigation from Sinistolim, and you know, I, I I can't say that it, you know, Laird Hunt's work, early work, wasn't an influence because I worked with him so clearly. Yeah, was, but also Corm uh, Cormac McCarthy's like sort of uh, hard-edged stories, like uh, No Country. Yeah, uh, the language in there. Um, but <clears throat> so I worked on it for a couple of years and shopped it when it was finally finished and you know that's when it, every character was named David and there's no differentiation except for their personalities yeah uh, but there was also things I researched like you know uh, one of the characters has face blindness one of the characters um, has hallucin hallucinations I mean there was quite a bit of research that doesn't show up sort of like the way that maybe met uh, Anthony uh, uh the way doers work does right um but it, it, i i shopped it three places mm. and got really helpful feedback punched it up a little uh then just did nothing with it it mm. just kind of hung around for a few years um because i was on to other things and you know how that is as well. yeah and Stalking Horse had an open call, and I thought, well, I know James Wright, I know what he reads, and I think he would understand this book. Yeah. And I sent it to him, and it was accepted. And then I was like, oh, God, now I have to, like, get back into this old <laughs> manuscript. And so there was this process of, like, you know, the first round of edits, I rewrote half of it. Yeah. And then the second round of edits, I rewrote a third of it. And then when I got the galleys... It, James was like, please don't rewrite any more of this. Uh, <laughs> but of course, I, you know, I had to because there were certain things that really needed to be fixed. Yeah. Um, a Flesh and Fur came quite quickly, actually. I, I started it at a sandwich, or no, no I started the first line uh, in my living room, and then most of it I wrote, like, different lunch breaks uh, from teaching mm. uh, at a sandwich shop, and... Uh, and it came quickly, and I shopped it, and uh, it, it got picked up very quickly. So <clears throat> um, that was more indicative of like the, the sort of syntax and strangeness. So as the, the, the sort of science stuff, I think that was like, so with, especially with uh, a flesh and fur, the science thing, like honestly, you could just take the cloning bit out. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it's not, you know, whereas, like, the City Awake, even though it's never directly stated that it's sort of a eugenics thing, yeah, uh, that is still pretty important to it, even if it's not stated in it. Um, the a Flesh and Fur, it's just like a little bit of a device to kind of say, like, what would a single man in a modern world do if he wanted a baby? Uh, and, you know... <clears throat> What would it be like to have your own worst self as a baby? Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, God. I'm just thinking about that, and that's yeah. absolutely terrifying. Yeah, and that's kind of the thing I think people miss because of the just the one little bit that's about cloning. I think a lot of people latch onto that, and they don't realize, like, oh, this is actually about, you know, the worst in human. Yeah. Well, because there are things with the narrator of that that for all that, like, you know— he comes off as this fairly rational guy. You sort of there are these glimpses in it that like he isn't necessarily a terribly nice person. In he's had definitely like 
he has certain qualities that are not particularly like admirable or or, or things in him, and so yeah, sort of seeing how that gets transposed. Yeah, and I think a lot of times, and I don't know about you, but with my characters, I think this I get this from studying Kafka so much is like. It, the, the, the character is the, the most fallible me, it seems to yeah. always be. You know, the character that means well, but always just sort of, you know, messes things up and, and makes a mess. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, this is reminding me I need to track down more Stanislaw Lim because uh, I, I recently, well, I think I took part in a marathon reading like four years ago of Solaris <laughs> that uh, was done... I think the folks who run the Atlas Review did it in conjunction with the Marina Abramovich Institute. Right. So it was kind of like, it was in this like weird basement theater in a hotel in Williamsburg. And uh, it was an, it was like an assortment of mostly New York based writers, but like there were a few people who like, like Abramovich, uh, I think like had a pre-recorded thing where she began reading it and like periodically they would kind of have other sort of pre-recorded like, oh, so-and-so is doing these two pages. I think like Neil Gaiman was one of them, so I'm kind of like, okay, Who? Neil Gaiman? Neil Gaiman. <laughs> so I I was kind of like, I was like, I guess technically I could say I've read with Neil Gaiman, like that would be cool. Um, but I've only ever read, I think the only other book of his I've read was uh, His Master's Voice. Okay. Which I enjoy, which like I picked up years ago and then was working on a freelance assignment and the freelance assignment kind of, it's like, oh right, I can actually finally read this book that's been on my to-read shelf for much too long. But uh, yeah, the investigate. So it's interesting. I came across that story because uh, Laird Hunt had just come to DU. Um, I can't remember. I don't know if he was. Yeah, he had big. He had just become faculty. So okay. he adjunct uh, one semester. Uh, one when. Brian Evanson was on sabbatical. Okay. And I had known Laird for years, uh, for a couple of years. And uh, uh, he, the, the, the impossibly had sort of just come out. Uh, he went to Minneapolis to do a reading. I think it was Chris Fishbach who said, have you read this book, The Investigation? And Laird said, no, I haven't. And I can't remember if Laird went and picked it up or if Chris gave him one. Yeah. So Laird loaned me his copy. And then I went to a conference on the West Coast, and I had it with me, and I read it on the flight, but it got totally bent up and destroyed. Oh, man. And uh, I felt so bad, you know, bringing it to, to later. Yeah. Like, so, yeah, you know. Um, <laughs> and so I can't remember. I think I bought him a new one, or I offered to buy him a new one, and he, he was okay with it. Um, I, I have similar stories with a, a, a Mingus CD with someone. So oh, I man. I can't remember which one I bought what. Mm. But, um... Uh, yeah, and, and this is like, I mean, oddly, something I was thinking about as you were talking, because I really just think about me when you're talking about Yeah. That, is, um, <laughs> like, what about me? Do I like gum? Uh, is, you know, I have this terrible fear that people are going to consider me a genre writer because of these two books that came out together. Yeah. Like, oh, he's going to, you know, but like, I'm incredibly not, you know, just like, yeah. Um, yes, I'm fascinated by by science, but that's because I listen to, you know, a lot of podcasts about science, and uh, but, you know, like my next two books, one is about sort of loosely based on the experience of my father dying and a bad relationship that I was going through at the same time and the one I'm working on now is a historical novel about land rights in Kentucky and a 
I mean, yes, it'll be dark and strange, like, yeah, you know, that's sort of my my interests, but um, it's, you know, the majority of what I write is more about psychology and, and the human condition. Yeah. Short stories. Well, I guess that's, I mean, and this might be kind of a, sort of a, kind of, a, as kind of a final, or final couple of questions, but like, um, I mean, your first novel that came out a while back also kind of has had sort of surrealist elements to it. I mean, do you think, is it more of like a, less a genre or not genre thing and more of just a realism or not realism? I mean, obviously, I mean, The City Awake is within the sort of confines you've established is a realistic novel with this sort of surreal elements in it, but it's not like, you know, one of the Davids suddenly turns into Godzilla and, you know, slips off into the night or anything like that. No, that is a missed opportunity. <laughs> I'm writing James as an editor. Yeah, no. Uh, the, the, and I think that when my first book, there were people that were very frustrated with it because um, <clears throat> they were like, well, all of the surreal and odd moments seem to be contained within this thesis of you know, is he mentally ill, or is this happening, or is the world a crazy world, and he, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think that, like, the people that wanted it to be just straight up strange, uh, which I don't understand that, but, uh, yeah. uh, that, that story, I was just kind of having fun at the time, and I was quite interested in, in writing a very odd story at that time sort of I was studying absurdism a lot and in, in, in a lot of ways although I, I, I don't think it's it'll ever it's not remotely as good I, I kind of tried to model parts of it after the castle um, mm. and that idea that the, the more the, the protagonist pushes for the truth the further the truth sort of gets and it sort of becomes more sort of there's this opaque, you know, this opaque thing that happens, um, like a fog just keeps descending and thickening the closer he gets. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's it's. I, I find that yeah, I try to keep everything. It's sort of like that. Uh, the romantics of the early American literature is like yes, they they do these sort of as as as. Um, Give me a second. Um, <laughs> Hawthorne writes, uh, I take uh, some latitude with reality, but there is always the, the real. The yeah. Like, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to think if there's a note we should uh, we should close it on that does not involve rating different the, the different Chipotle's between Santa Fe and Minneapolis in here. Uh, actually, okay, here's, here's a question. Um, We've, uh, we've, we've gone to, when we were in Santa Fe, we went to uh, the art space Meow Wolf, and when we were in Minneapolis, we went to the Minneapolis Institute of Art, and uh, went to, checked out the Guillermo del Toro exhibit, and uh, looked at an exhibit of protest art, uh, photographs of protests and, and political happenings, and then uh, an art installation that had to do with giant bags full of water and algae suspended from uh, different racks. So, I mean... <clears throat> Does does kind of visual art in any way sort of end up sparking ideas in you for either short stories or uh, or things? 
Yes, I think uh, this is something Bobby Louise Hawkins said early on when I first took notes. So I, I kind of tried to start as a poet when I entered graduate mm. school and then quickly changed. So by the time I went to the University of Denver for the PhD program, I was just completely fiction. Mm. Um, but, you know, she said that we have to listen to all the moments of art um, and, and see what, you know, that every essentially everything is, is informing fiction and there's this great sort of interdisciplinary approach to writing and I think that when we look across history and I think you'll agree with this most writers we admire are great consumers of art yeah. and culture and um, <clears throat> I mean hearing you know Dylan Hicks talk about I was just know, yeah compositions in his essay he read with us the other night that was just wonderful um, and I think that's what makes writing so, so, so dialogic is that we're, we're kind of communicating with different artworks. So, yeah. um, you know, there was this moment when we were at the Minneapolis Institute of Art and, uh, Del Toro, if, if for the listeners that don't, don't know this exhibit, it's the director, uh, Guillermo del Toro's, uh, it's his personal collection, and so there's there's things from his movies, but then also art he's collected. And so I turn the corner, and there's one of the Francis Bacon screaming popes, and I'm a huge Francis Bacon fan. Uh, <clears throat> and I'd seen this one before at the retrospective um, in New York, but there I am looking at it, and it's in glass, and I'm, there's a woman backing up because right across from it is the skinwalker, I believe is his name, from uh, Pan's Leather. Oh, yeah. And so this woman's backing up to take a picture of her friend doing something goofy in front of the skinwalker. And, like, almost knocks into this painting. And I stop her, and she turns around and kind of gives a look and says, What's that? And I was like, That's, you know, I'm kind of like this, like, pretentious guy. That is a multi-million dollar piece of art history. <laughs> um, and so, but I took a picture of it because in the reflection of the glass is the skinwalker. Yeah. Of the, so I have the screaming Pope with like the skinwalker creeping up on it. Uh, and it, it's kind of this, this really kind of like, I thought this was like that moment of high and low art facing each other. And that sort of, you know, I, I was like, I really felt like, wow, you know, uh, this is, uh, you know, if this was like 1999, this would be a postmodern moment. Yeah. Uh, and I guess it still is a postmodern moment. But... Yeah. It, it was super interesting, um, and I don't know if this line of inquiry is going to go anywhere, but, like, for all that, like, it was a lot of, you know, dealt stuff from his movies and storyboard and concept art and, like, it was interesting. I mean, there was, like, I think there were there was a statue of Poe and there was a statue of Lovecraft, but, like... I remember, wasn't Del Toro for years trying to do an adaptation of At the Mountains of Madness that I think hasn't necessarily, you know, never quite came about because studios weren't willing to give him, like, hundreds of millions of dollars for, like, an intense R-rated, you know, horror movie. Right. But I was sort of surprised that there was nothing, because it's kind of like, I assume there was work done for that. And I was sort of surprised to see, like, like hey, here's... Here's Lovecraft, who, you know, is, you know, 
perhaps not the rightly not one of the most beloved horror writers these days, but sort of not that more personal connection, which like I I was kind of surprised to see that not in there. Not that I'm critiquing he Guillermo might be del Toro's. Yeah, kind of under wraps until um, until it's it's it, it's um, yeah. You know, oddly, this is kind of a good segue into what I, I was sort of thinking after the we we saw those things is that that sort of like wax figure of Poe. Yeah, it's got this you know set up in a room and there's lightning and rain behind him in his window. And all I can think is like, you know, um, uh, you know, here's a guy who who was pro-slavery. Like for some <laughs> reason, I just can't ever get past that because I loved Poe so much yeah. as a young man. And uh, <clears throat> and then, you know, so we see all these sort of, sort of horrific things uh, that he's collected, uh, Del Toro's collected of like, oh, here's a, a skull and here's this creepy little monster and here's this nightmare thing. And then we just go down to these photographs in black and white of protest art. Mm. And they're from the, the you know, the, the like 63, 64 in America. Yeah. And it's police like beating on, you know, black men. And there's that one picture I took. Uh, I took that picture of a picture of the one where they're like sort of almost like pulling apart a protest. Yeah. And I thought this is infinitely more horrific than anything yeah. that we can come up in the shadow, you know, with shadow creatures and everything. This, this, and, and I want to look at these pictures. I'm already ashamed that this is the America that we grew up in, but I'm also like, this is the America we live in. And to me, that's infinitely more horrific than any creature that, that we can dream up that, that lives in a closet or comes out at night. Um, yeah. And, and, and I, I just remember... Oddly, the algae bags were kind of like defamiliarizing enough to get me out of that anger spot when we left. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when I look at those pictures, I'm just, I'm just kind of like, "Fuck you, America." <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I, I think that might actually be a good spot to end. Yeah, fuck you, America is the best place to end. <laughs>